but we're glad everyone's here. We had a great Sunday last Sunday. I don't know if you caught it. A little out of breath, but uh, great Sunday. We had over 2,000 people here last Sunday. Just a great, great time. And uh, Zach was preaching. You heard his stories, right? I'm here to tell you, he did not exaggerate any of those stories. As a matter of fact, I didn't hear the word, remember, kids trapped in a car 12 hours at a time. I didn't hear the words vomit. I didn't hear the words urine, which are part of that story. So I'm telling you, he downplayed it. He gave you the synthesized version. The, the, he gave you the PG light. So anyway, it was a lot worse uh, than he shared. And, and sometimes weird things happen, right? Can I tell you another weird story? Just, just odd. Last night I'm here at the church. It's about 6, 6.30 in the evening. And I'm doing some work in my office. And as I'm working, it's dark outside. My office is lit up, you know, like a fishbowl. And then I, I notice guys keep, some students keep walking by my window from the parking lot. First one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, <laughs> and just more and more. And then, and then 10, 11, 12, and they're all gathering under that, by the front door, under the awning. And so they're all just standing there. They look like they're all about 20, kind of trendy. And uh, pretty soon there's like 15. And, but they're not pulling on the doors, they're just standing there. So I get up and I go to the office door and I say, do you guys need in or do you need something? There's a couple of custodians around, but that's it. And I'm also looking, because you, you've seen the, you know, I'm looking out the parking lot. There's no cars big enough to carry this many people. So you've seen like the circus where all the clowns get out of the Volkswagen. It's like, where, where are all these people coming from? And then they come over and they say, we're from Harvard University. And we are doing a study on churches, and we we're at a church in Clyde, and they told us we should come here. And so we were wondering if we could look through your space and ask you some questions. And I'm like, okay. And there's a professor there with them. And, and so I give them a tour through our building. We come in here and walk around. And then we're over in the, we end up in the new youth center, and they're asking us about timing, when we build these buildings, how long we've been here as a church, what we believe, and stuff like that. And I'm just answering all these questions, and I'm telling them, and I'm inviting them to church. And, uh, but the whole time, I'm realizing that, that for a lot of these students, you know, how countercultural Christianity really is. You know, that's always in the back of my mind. Anyway, five of those students were in our service in first hour, some came back. But uh, very cool. They were asking me how long is service, and I said, well, it's about an hour and five minutes. And, uh, so, and so they, some of them came. But uh, just very, of course, I'm thinking as I'm, you know, this is Harvard, and I'm thinking, this can't go well for us. You know, this is going to be bad. But it all turned out great. Some of, it turns out some of them are believers and came, and, you know, we were glad to have them. So if there's any other Harvard students here, thanks for being here. You're always welcome at Grace, and uh, we're, we'd love to talk to you anytime, and we, we just appreciate that you would even, even think about us. So cool stuff. We're in this, as I was kind of thinking about the culture, because not knowing these students and not knowing some of them were believers, I'm thinking, okay, this has got to be really different for them because Christianity is countercultural to every culture, right? It's just different things about Christianity offend different cultures. There's things in Christianity that offend traditional cultures, and there's things in 
Christianity that offend our culture today. So it's, that's just the way it is. But as I was doing that and thinking about that, I'm reminded about our, our, what, Paul's, or what Peter's saying here in 1 Peter, that, hey, we're exiles. That's, that's what our series is all about, that Zach launched us last Sunday. And we're exiles. We're aliens. This is not our home anymore. And, and we're counterculture. We believe differently than the culture believes. We believe there's a God, a creator. We believe in absolute right and wrong. It, that's just, we believe that God created male and female, and, and they're equal, yet they're different in design. There's some differences there. We believe that human life is in the image of God. And so it deserves to be protected, whether it's a day before birth, a week before birth, a month before birth, a trimester before birth. It does not matter. Human life, it's God's image. We protect that. You know, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Christianity is countercultural. And Peter is writing these people in the first century, and they're feeling that way more than we are. Because they're not, not only living in a world, but they're living in a hostile world, and they're being persecuted. Now, few of us have gone through persecution, maybe none of us. I mean, we feel the tension in our culture, but just know that there are some places in the world, even today, where people are persecuted exactly the same way Christians were persecuted when Peter is writing to them in the first century, right? Right? Zach kind of touched on how that was in the first century. Well, stuff like that is happening today in different parts of the world. And then in all that, as he's telling Peter, is addressing these people saying, hey, you've been reborn to a new and living hope. You have a new life. Then he drops this bomb and says, be holy. And that's what I want to talk about today. Be holy. Because we're thinking, holy me, holy, but God calls us to holiness. So I want to pick it up in First Peter, and I'm going to start in verse 13. And here's what he says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we have this incredible statement. It kind of freaks us out and blows our minds. But he starts that off. He says, prepare your minds. In the old King James, it's a little more literal Greek translation. It says, gird up the, loin, gird up the loins of your mind. You know, it's, it's that picture when people wore robes, men did, especially when they needed to do work or battle. They would pick up those robes and tuck them into their belts, ready for action. Prepare your minds, he's saying, which is interesting because some people think being a Christian means not thinking. How many of you have ever known somebody that, maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, and that's not maybe a lot of people here, but if you've been a Christian maybe since you were a kid or, or you just have a longer history, and you knew somebody that used to go to church and they don't go to church anymore, how many of you had a conversation like this where you say, hey, you know, do you go to church anymore? And they say something along these lines. They say, you know, 
I used to go to church, but then I started thinking about it, and I really just don't buy it anymore, and so I'm out. And the implication is this. Yeah, I used to go to church. I used to be like you, but then I started thinking, and since I started thinking, I'm not like you anymore, right? That's kind of the implication. Well, if anybody's, anybody have someone kind of come to you that way, it happens a lot. Anytime somebody, apparently not in this room, but it happens a lot. But anytime somebody says something like that to you, which I've had people say that to me a lot, here's the response. So, well, if you're thinking, so, so you're, you're thinking, well, then that means that you understand, you know, know God, that you understand that that love isn't real. Love is just some chemical reaction in your brain that somehow caused your ancestors to survive a little better. But it's not real. It doesn't mean anything. That, that means that you believe that there's no meaning in life, that we just exist, but there's no purpose to it. It's all just an accident. It doesn't really matter what, what we do. That, that means that, that you believe that when we die, it really doesn't matter whether we lived a good life or we were cruel, it doesn't matter in the end because we're all just worm food and that's the end of it. And then typically when you say that, here's what they'll say. When, no, I don't want to think about all that. That's depressing. That, that'll drive you nuts if you keep thinking about the meaningless, meaninglessness of life. You know, I, I don't... I don't want to think about all that stuff. That, that just kind of depresses you. And then just say this. Well, you see, you get your peace by not thinking. But Christians, we as Christians get our peace by thinking. That's the difference. We are thinking it through. Because Christianity answers the biggest questions in our life. We talk about them a lot. The question of origin, the question of destiny, the question of meaning or purpose, you know, the question of how we should live. These things are answered in Christianity. And when we, we can answer those questions, it, the quest, these questions do not bring despair like they do if you do not. There's no answer if there's no God. It doesn't make sense. But as a Christian, not only is there an answer, but the answer brings life and hope. It changes everything. So he starts out by saying, prepare your mind. And, and by the way, Christian, if, if you struggle with worry, you're not thinking God's truth through. If you're struggling with peace, having peace, you're, just uns- you're not thinking God's truth through. Or you're struggling with hope, you're not thinking through biblical truth. And then Peter says, Not only prepare your minds, but be sober in spirit. He's saying, be self-controlled. He's reminding us, we only have one life to live. Be careful how you live it. Be disciplined. Be self-controlled. And then he says, set your hope fully on the grace brought through Jesus. You see, when we prepare our minds and we think through God's truth, we have practical logical, real, foundational hope. And when we use this word hope from the New Testament, it doesn't mean hope like we use it in our culture sometimes. Oh, I hope so, I think so, maybe, I hope, I hope, I hope. I don't know, I don't know, I hope. No, in Scripture, this word that translates hope 
is the certain expectation of what we know will happen in the future. So hope isn't wishy-washy. Hope is a certain expectation. We're banking on it because we know it's true of some future event. That's what hope is. So we have this certain expectation of what God has done and will do for us. A practical, logical, real hope. It kind of refers to Jesus is coming back. And, and actually this year we're going to do a series about what the Bible says about future times. But that's not for today. And Peter has already said this statement, believers are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. He's already said that earlier in chapter 1, as Zach mentioned last time. God brings hope into our lives. And a whole bunch of us could stand up and explain to you what that hope meant to our lives. Here, for the last several weeks, didn't do it last week, we've been sharing stories of people at Grace. You want to hear another one? Yeah. All right, let's hear another one. This is Jill Earl. My name is Jill Earl. I grew up in Kansas, Ohio. In 2001, um, I got married. We had two daughters, Michaela, who's 19, and Madison, who is 15. In 2000. And 17, my life took a drastic change. My husband came to me um, after 16 years of marriage and told me that he wanted a divorce. Um, at that point, uh, I was a hot mess. I wanted to control everything. My way was the only way. I thought that I could solve everything and fix everything. And if I couldn't come up with a solution or you know a fix to something, I felt as though I was a failure. I had always controlled everything up until this point, um, and this was completely out of my control. Amy Spell came into my life and um, was talking to me about God and how God could help me through all of this. And I respectfully listened to her, um, but still in my heart felt that I knew what was best for me and I knew how to handle this and I knew how to fix it. Um, she recognized the fact that I needed to talk to somebody different, and she put me in contact with Pastor Kevin and I met with him. He invited me to come to church and I reluctantly accepted. He assured me that we're all jacked up, we're all messed up, and that um, it wasn't too late for me to become a believer. But in my heart, I felt like there was no hope. I, I, it was too late. Why, how could I, at the age of you know, 40, have a relationship with God? Things had gotten progressively worse at home with my husband. Um, he had fits of rage that I had never seen before in him. There was a lot of things that were said to me that were very, very hurtful. He, some were true, some weren't. I felt very um, worthless. I felt like um, there was no hope. I felt like there um, was never going to be an end to this and that I had really no way out other than to take my own life. I remember uh, sitting on the floor in my bedroom, staring out the window, sitting Indian style on the floor. I had a pistol in my lap and bullets in my hand, and I just felt like there was just there was never going to be an end to the hurt and the, and the crazy that was going on in my life. I was just I was pleading with God to give me a reason why I shouldn't take my own life, why I why I shouldn't just bow out. I clearly cannot love. And, and in, in a way that, you know, and, and I'm clearly not loved. 
and shortly after, you know, begging and pleading and just staring out the window, um, I felt this overwhelming sense of warmth just through my body, and, um, and I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of clarity. Um, I was able to, you know, have a complete thought, and my mind stopped racing, and I remember, you know, just feeling like a hug almost. I just, I looked out the window, and, and I just remember in my mind, hearing, you know, your daughters love you, they need you, your mom loves you, she needs you. And for the first time in my life, I heard, God loves you. And that's something that I never thought in a million years I'd ever hear, much less feel. Um, I put the gun down, and I got on top of my bed, and I curled up in a ball, and I remember crying, but it wasn't the same tears that I was crying before. They were different. And moments later, my oldest daughter uh, came barging into my bedroom and was like, Hey, Mom, how are you doing? Just wanted to spend some time with you. And it hit me. If I had gone through with what I had planned on doing, she would have found me. And God saved me from making the biggest mistake of my life. She left. Um, we had a great chat. She left and... The moment she got out, I had on my knees and I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant, but he had me. And I wasn't going anywhere. I, I can't even explain the feeling. My thought processes changed dramatically. You know, I started, I think like all new Christians, I dove into the Bible, right? I, <laughs> I wanted to memorize everything and, and know everything and, and quickly realized how overwhelming that could be. <laughs> and uh, since accepting Jesus as my Savior, um, I still struggle with control and trying to uh, do things my way. Um, but I'm able to take a step back and realize that His way is, is the best way. Things just seem to make more sense, doing life God's way and not mine. And Jill's sitting right over here. Isn't that true of what happens when God comes into our life? We have this living hope. It ch he changes everything for us. The way we process things, the way we think, it's all new, it's different, it's a new life that God offers us that we can accept. Changes us from the inside out, a vibrancy, a passion, purpose, meaning, it all kind of gets clearer as we commit our life to Christ. And then, as Peter's talking about this living hope, and he's leading up to telling us that, that we should live a life in response to what God has done for us, then the next phrase he uses is, as obedient children. And he might even be thinking this phrase, obedient children, as a synonym for Christianity, because his assumption is Christians obey God. It says, obedient children. But what, what I want to point out is, 
our obedience, sometimes when we hear that, wow, you know, it sounds like we're a robot, we got to do this, you know, that God just wants to control us. But obedient children, it's not that way. He says children, and what's he talking about is as obedient children, we, we would obey as if kind of like how we would obey a parent. Because we obey our parents differently than we obey other people. I mean, our boss and everything, we obey out of obligation. But our parents, especially when we're young, we obey out of devotion. It's different, out of love. As a matter of fact, there's a story in the Old Testament that illustrates this. It's about King David's life right after he became king. Uh, the, they, they were always at war back then with the Philistines, and the Philistines knew that David had become king after Saul, and so they invaded to try to destabilize the country before David could really consolidate power. And so they took over Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and David is hiding out in a stronghold that is actually a cave with some of his mighty men. He's the king, legit, but he doesn't really control his kingdom at this point. And he's sitting there, they're hiding out, they're with the camp, and you know, they're, they're letting the, the Philistines kind of run wild over their life. And then David, it's almost like he's reminiscing, just kind of wishful thinking, and he says, oh, if I could only drink from the well outside the city gate of Bethlehem. He grew up in Bethlehem, and so, you know, he's just, yeah, if I could just drink some water, you know, how cool would that be? And some of his mighty men, some of his soldiers hear that, three guys hear that, and they sort of step off to the side and I think we can make that happen. And so they quietly leave the camp with nobody knowing. They arm themselves. They leave the stronghold. They fight through the Philistine lines. They fight all the way to the gate of the city Bethlehem. While two guys are fighting, one guy is drawing water from the well. They put it in a skin. They fight their way back through the lines of the Philistines. And then they go to the camp. And then they come up to David and say, heard you say you want some water. Boom. From the well at the city gate in Bethlehem. And David is so stunned, he can't drink it. He actually pours it out onto the ground as an offering to his God. As an offering to God saying, it is not right for me to drink this water that they have risked their lives to provide. And he's saying, I, even though I'm king, I'm not worthy of this kind of devotion. And he pours the water out. And I got to tell you, it probably made his men love him even more. But the point is, David didn't command them, go get me some water. David didn't even say, you know, I don't want to command anybody to do this, but it'd really be nice if somebody could go get me some water. Now, he's just wishful thinking. He might not even been really reminiscing about the water. He might have just been reminiscing about having the freedom to go to the well and drink because he's not in control of that part of the country anymore. And these guys are like, consider it done. Because for them, they loved David so much, they didn't need to be commanded. It, it, he didn't have to wish that it was that way. Just a sigh, just a remembrance. To them, they took that as a command in obedience out of devotion. They went and made that happen. And that's how we should obey God. When we reflect on what God has done for us and how he has saved us and how we don't deserve it and how he rescues us from our former life, we should want to live 
Obedience to him. Not out of compulsion. Out of devotion. And then he says, be holy in all you do. And this is the freaky part for us Christians. We're like, okay, here's God through Peter telling us, be holy in all you do. And it's like, gulp, you know, it's like, whoa. Wow, holy, me, holy. How does that happen? It's interesting because holiness, that word, doesn't have a lot of currency in our culture today. Holiness. The only time we really use that word today is if we're mocking somebody or criticizing somebody. Oh, you think you're so holy. That's how we use it. We don't really use the word even. It has no currency today. And, And we tend to think holiness, we equate that with morality. But that's not all of what holiness is, not even close. Holiness is morality, but it's so much more. If we remember those scenes in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, also see it in Revelation, where the angels are flying around the throne of God and they're shouting what? Holy! 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 They're, they're not shouting moral, moral, moral. They're, they're shouting, it's that, but it's a lot more. They're saying that he is transcendent, that he is completely pure and righteous and holy and right. And he's transcendent. He's different. He's separate from all others. That's God. And really the word, as the Greek is trying to reflect the Hebrew word here, and the Hebrew word holiness, it really means set apart. That's how, if you're ever reading through the Bible and you start getting bogged down in Leviticus, and Leviticus starts talking about some things, stuff. Like, until then, it was all kind of a story, but then it gets into the tabernacle and all that. And then Leviticus says stuff like this, like the table for the showbread is holy. Well, how can a table be moral? Tables aren't moral. You know, they're just inanimate objects. I mean, they're just things. What, what it's saying there is, This table was built and designed and only has one use. This table is set apart to worship God. That's how a thing can be holy. Set apart strictly only for God's use. And then Peter tells us, be holy in all you do. And so we realize that that's not just a call to morality and obedience. It's a call for us to be set apart from the world. For us to recognize that now we belong to God. We are his vessel. We are here to do what he would want us to do. Not out of compulsion, just his desire, just his wish, just God's size should be enough to motivate us to obedience. We're redeemed set apart by his blood. We're not our own. We're called as a believer. If you're a believer here, that's not everybody. If you're a believer, we are called for his use, is what Scripture's saying. And then next, besides our call to be holy, he's basically giving our reason to be holy. So picking up where we left off, verse 17, it says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter goes on here and he calls us to, that God's calling us to be holy. And then he reminds us that our time on earth is limited. And then he says that we have an impartial judge, which is ironic for our culture today. Because the motto of our culture is this, hey, don't judge me. Hey, don't judge me. And I know a lot of times we say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, in kind of a funny way, lighthearted, don't judge me. But there is a deep-seated reality in our culture today that people feel like nobody can judge them. Nobody has the right to judge me. I live my own life. I go by my own truth, as if there's different truths for different people, which there's not. But, hey, I live this way. Nobody can judge me. Ironically, God is judge, our judge, all of our judge. God, he is our creator and our judge. Now, for unbelievers, this is terrifying. For unbelievers, this means, because Scripture tells us that if you're not a believer, you cannot stand before God's judgment. You cannot stand up before his judgment. His judgment is right and pure and we, as non-believers, will be condemned. We, and condemned means we will be separated from God forever in a place called hell. It's what happens at that judgment. Non-believers get what they wanted all their life, and that was to keep God out of their life, to keep God at an arm's distance. They get that forever, and it's tragic. Believers, on the other hand, are judged in a different way, and here's why. Believers, all of our sins, all of them have been paid for in Jesus. We're just as guilty as a non-believer. Same guilt. We're just like they are. But because we've placed our trust, our faith, in Jesus alone and his death on the cross, his death then pays our penalty for sin. So when we stand before God in a different judgment called the beamy seat judgment, we'll talk about that another time, but when we stand before God, there's no sin to be judged because our sin is already paid for and it would not be justice for us to again pay for sin that's already been paid for. And so there's nothing less but what we've done that's good, which cannot earn our salvation or anyway, but then we stand before God to see if we will get a well done, that kind of a reward from God. But there's no negatives. It's like the Olympic Games rewards that were present in the first century in Corinth and the peninsula where they were running these games. And then at the end, there was a, a judgment, but it was all just handing out awards. Not everybody got one, but there was, nobody got in trouble. That kind of a, a judgment. So we're all going to be judged. We have an impartial judge, Peter is saying. And, and then he brings up this issue of fear. A lot of people are, are critical about the Bible because, well, yeah, we should fear God. Or there's this God of the Old Testament who's not as nice as the God of the New Testament. We've we got to really watch that guy. This is the New Testament. Peter's saying, fear God. Fear God. 
And for believers, it's fear God because God is our creator and our judge, and we are separated from him by our sin, all of us. But for believers, this fear is different. And the way this word is used in the Greek, it's a little different than the way we use fear. It's awe and reverence and wonder of God. We should respond to him with this a reverential fear, an awesome wonder at who God is. And then why do we respond that way? Well, we respond that way because, next thing he says, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Why do we respond to God with awe and wonder? Because God, who is perfectly pure and just and right and moral, who created us but gave us choice, but unfortunately all of us use that gift as we were created in the image of God and we have this choice, we misused it, We've all sinned and done things that God said we should not do. And because of that, we all have sin. And because God's just, God has to judge sin. And so that's a problem for all of us. But we should fear God with awe and wonder, knowing that he paid our price, that he loved us so much he didn't leave it there, but he allowed his one and only son, Jesus, to leave heaven and to suffer, bleed, and die in payment for my sin and your sin. And the way we get that accredited is through faith in Christ alone. Not faith and we lived a good or holy life, just faith, just trusting in Christ. But when we have our faith or our trust in Christ, just like Jill did, placed her faith in Jesus, But once we do that, God changes our life, and we start living his way. That doesn't earn our salvation. Our salvation isn't earned. It's a gift given to us by what Jesus did. And so that's that's what he's telling us. This is the reason. The reason he's given us to be holy, and then just how to be holy. That's where holiness starts. It's with the gospel. When we come to Christ. That's the message Jill came to understand. I'm sure she heard God loves her, but until that moment, she never heard that God loved her. And it changed everything. And it's that way for us. Here in the text... And by the way, God's not calling us to be perfect, be holy. He's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to be distinct, to be separate, to be set apart from the world. That's what he means. That's how we do it. We're set apart for his purposes. And then he continues in verse 22, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren... Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And then he wraps up this chapter, then he goes to the next chapter. The first verse there in chapter 2 is, Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He's saying, hey, how do we live this out? 
He's asking us to be set apart, and that starts with our love. Now, Christians should love all people, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. What Peter's talking about here is that we as Christians should love other Christians. When we come to church, we should love each other, and not just that. Peter's saying we should love each other fervently because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, that's what will cause people to want to know more about me is when you in church love each other. And that changes how we see people. There's a, a retired couple, a part of our church, newly retired couple, you know, that are close friends of mine. And, uh, and this guy is a guy who... He loves telling people about Jesus. He shares his faith a lot. He's, he'll always do any work. You know, he knows welding and stuff. So he's always, you know, always willing to do anything we want. And he, he was telling me this story that he has a nephew in another state who was going through some difficulties. He knew that. And the nephew called him and said, hey, this and this and this has happened. And you know I've been going through some tough times and I need some money. And so will you wire me? some money, I think, with the intention they would pay it back. And so my buddy is, who's a smart guy, he's hearing this. The guy knows all the circumstances that his nephew's in. The guy sounds like the nephew, maybe a little bit, and the guy says, well, it's because of the accident that you already know about. You know, it's, I sound a little bit different, yeah. And he knows everything. And so you know how, where this is going, maybe? He wires him some money, finds out that wasn't his nephew, and he's scammed out of his nest, his, he and his wife's nest egg. And, and so he tells me that, and it makes me mad, right? I, it may, like I, I, re, I have an emotional reaction. Well, why is it? I'm not a very emotional guy, but why am I having an emotional reaction? Because I love this guy, and he's lost something. And then I get emotional, and then I get kind of mad, and then I get kind of protective. You know, I'm going through all these emotions as he's standing there. Of course, he's just kind of like, yeah, well, this happened, you know. But, you know, he's got a God view, so he's not torn up about it. But I'm left like, oh, that's just not right. And so me, and so, you know, because we're friends, me and some of his friends are trying to figure out what we could do to, to help that situation. But, you know, it's just like. So, so moral of that story, by the way, is if anybody calls you and asks you for money for any reason, do not send it. And it'll always be, you know, less than $10,000 because 10000 you know, all of a sudden there's all kinds of tracking that has to happen. For example, soon I'm leading a team from our church to Thailand where we will visit our two orphanages and help some refugees at the Burma border. But, so we're going to be going there. So if any of you get a call from me in the middle of the night and I say, Hey, this is Kevin. I'm in a Thailand jail. And you're the only person I could get a hold of. Wire me some money. I'm just telling you right now, just say, hey, Kevin, you're on your own, man. Sorry, not going to do it. You know, I'm telling you, don't do it. And by the way, I won't be offended because that probably won't be me. And if it is me, I'll know I already told you not to do it. So, you know, just. We love People, and why would you might want to, because you would say, well, this is Kevin, we're, we're like family, we're at grace. We should have that feeling. God intends for us to have that feeling. 
That's how we should feel about each other. That's why we should show up here. That's why we should interact. Because it's important. Because we want to rub off on each other. We, we want to encourage each other. We want to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Be holy by obeying the truth God has given us, Peter says. And, and there's only one truth. There's not a set of truths for this person and a different set of truths. for the, as, as believers, truth there's just one truth. There's not different truths for different people. One truth, absolute truth, that doesn't come from us, comes from God over us. And why do we obey? Why do we obey? Because we love the Father. Because He saved our lives. He's changed our lives. He's given us new life, joy, hope, purpose, meaning. All that floods into our soul when we turn our life over to him. And then he's saying, hey, obey. And then he goes through this quick list. He's, he's saying, you know, get, because you're a believer, get rid of these things. And it's a bunch of things that destroy Christian community. He says, get rid of malice. That's ill will or wanting something bad for somebody. Deceit. Speaking with ulterior motives, hypocrisy, that's insincerity or inconsistency between what you say and what you do. Get rid of envy, he's saying, which is the attitude behind deceit and hypocrisy and causes community strife. He says, get rid of slander. And we know in Peter's day, Christians were victims of slander. But wait, we would expect that. But way worse than that was it comes from the inside when people misquote or take a fraction of what you said and rip it out of the context. Or with electronic devices, people can do that. You can write a paragraph about something, and you know they could take a, a sentence or two and make it sound like something else. And say, hey, Don't do that. Don't slander. He's, he's calling us all to this. Why? Because in obedience, we want to love other believers out of devotion to God. Why eliminate these things? out of love for the Father. The same way David's men loved him. Only David's men just risked their lives for David. God gave his life for us. I said, what am I saying? If you're here and you don't have that relationship with God, that you've not crossed this line of faith, that you've not realized that that God is offering you salvation through faith alone, trusting in Christ alone, through what Jesus did and nothing else. Not living a good life, nothing like that. That doesn't contribute to your salvation. But for believers, we know that once we've received this life-giving, life-bringing, life-bearing hope and love, that we are motivated by gratitude to obey, by devotion the one who loved us so much. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your goodness. and God, we, we say that kind of flippantly sometimes, but we are stunned and awestruck at your goodness and your love and your provision for us in Christ. It's beyond what any of us could ever deserve. And Father, for those who are with us, our friends who are here with us and, and they don't have a relationship with you based on faith. Father, we pray that you'd help them to see and that you would draw them to yourself, that you'd uh, turn the light on for them, 
like you did for Jill even at the darkest time. Help us to be part of that. And Father, for those of us who are believers, God, we pray that you'd help us to respond to you with devotion and obedience, that we would live holy lives set apart to be used by you. Help us to do that, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close in a song, and as we do that, um, if any of you I want to talk about having that relationship where you have questions. I'll be in room one right over here as you're leaving on your left. And some other pastors will be with me. We'll be happy to talk to you about that. Any questions you have. So church, we go and stand as we, as we uh, close out this morning in worship. Just think about his goodness and about his grace and his mercies.